You're listening to Shade, the podcast where I chat to a wide community of creatives across disciplines, photographers, writers, scholars, and even policymakers working within the media and beyond, who have all challenged the concepts of race and identity within their work. I'm Lou Menser, writer and photographer, and I've always wondered why people create the work that they do. This week, I chat with author and journalist Nelson Abbey. Nels was a banker for BlackRock before he chose writing as his discipline of choice, as a tool for highlighting and challenging racism. His best-selling book, Think Like a White Man, takes a satirical look at the structures of racism within the workplace, and it's been published recently by Canongate. Race is one of the subjects I write about. I suppose it's probably the one I'm most known for writing about now because I've written Think Like a White Man. Yeah. But how I how I got into things was when I was little, I was very, very little. I was about 11 years old. I was born in the UK, mm-hmm. born in London. When I was about 11 years old, I was sent to Nigeria um, for school purposes. Yeah. And um, when I was there, I joined uh, my, when I was there in my secondary school, I joined my school's um, press club. Yeah. Because I came from a highly political, politicised background. My parents were, my, my dad and his friends were always talking politics at home, always had um, things to say about what was actually happening at the time. And Nigeria is in a state of turmoil. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a time where it was hard not to know much about politics. And it was also to, I admired the writers, the news, the people who write pieces in newspapers, I, oh, their, their way with language and stuff of that nature that really interested me. Yeah. And then... Um, also, too, evidently, I was doing a lot of reading. I was reading the Achebes, the Orwells, the Dickens, you, just the classics, etc. Mm-hmm. So I always found that very, very fascinating. Joined my student pay, uh, paper, my student press club. Mm-hmm. Um, rose to become one of the editors of it. I did quite well over there um, in that. And then um, um, I left it for a little bit. But when I got to university, no, when I got to college and then to back in the UK, when I got to college and to university, I just picked up again. I would just see things happening and I think that this is pretty interesting which pretty messed up and I'll find a way um to try and express it I suppose it, there's a burning uh, injustice does not sit well with me in the slightest bit and when it when I see something that's unjust or something that's just inherently wrong or so I feel that very very burning urge to say something or do something about it so I yeah. think that drove me to write in general but also drove me to write about race because I saw that look um as far as black people in the West are concerned or so then there was a lot of things wrong and there was a lot of things that often I would see people who probably could articulate things a little bit better or do things a bit of a different way and I thought okay let me do it my way and see how it work from there. Yeah yeah that's amazing so it started really young for you and um, I've, I've read um, in some articles that you've written that you found therapy and a coping mechanism for racism yeah. through satire. Um, yeah. And you created the character Dr. Boulay Whitelaw, yeah. uh, a comedic Machiavellian, uh, professor of white people studies. Um, uh, and together you wrote Think Like a White Man. And it says that it's a self-help book for black employees inspired by the steady drip of persistent everyday racism as experienced and witnessed by yourself 
and your friends. Using such a unique way um, through satires in which to explore racism, how was the journey of finding your publisher, Canongate? So there's two steps to it. When you write a book, you have to, A, find an agent who will then take, who normally have to take it to publishers. So that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the classic route to it. You mm-hmm. find an agent and then the agent takes it to the publisher. With mm-hmm. me, and then the publishers then say yay or nay, whether they want to make an offer for it or they don't want to make an offer for it. Mm-hmm. Um, with me, it was slightly different. I pitched to so many agents and um none of them none of them took me on board none of them thought none of them some of them would give me a lot of feedback and say hey um this is here's my feedback um be more funny be more comedian um be more clownish or something like that and Mm -hmm. um they would say but but thanks but no thanks the book's not for me or some of them would just say look i just my black friends don't think that this is a good idea and um and then that would be that so it was fairly of course it's almost implicit to your question Publishing is a fairly white industry, and I've written. I'm a fairly. I've written a fairly, fairly extremely black book, probably the blackest book you possibly uh, possible within the context of Britain so far. Mm. So what I found was that um, I kept pitching to agents, and I was getting nowhere, and it was a bit frustrating. But Mm. every writer goes through this. Almost every writer goes through this. But then um, Penguin Random House, who is the is the vehement, the mammoth um, publishing entity. Um, the biggest publisher in the world they did this competition called right now mm-hmm. and it was looking for unsigned writers from under from underrepresented backgrounds and uh, you had to send in about a thousand words or so and then um, i was in barcelona and i just it, i was about to nod off to sleep mm-hmm. i remembered that oh yeah that i if i wanted to apply this applet for this um competition i had to um submit my words by midnight and i think it was about <laughs> quarter past 11 or so and so I just had to quickly write out my application and submit my words and I just handed it in I left it very um, succinctly I left it very very minimal and mm-hmm. submitted it and, um, they liked it and then they I uh, was I was shortlisted I was longlisted as one of the so there's about 200 2000 applicants I was longlisted as one of the 150 mm-hmm. and then I was shortlisted as one of the 60 and then finally I became one of the 12 that they picked from there, they offered Penguin offered me a deal, but then Canongate also offered me a deal, and I was just looking for the best publisher. The publishers I went with, they kind of got it. So Penguin yeah. got it out of the gate. So when Penguin picked my book up out of 2,000 manuscripts, it was about seven people in the room, and they all found it funny. They all understood it. They all they all got it. What I was trying to do, they all thought it was quite unique. So mm-hmm. that was very refreshing to know. And then um, when Penguin made me an offer, my they also got me an agent to make sure there was no conflict of interest, mm-hmm. which was a very good and respectable thing for them to do. Mm. So then, um, my agent then took it to some other people, to Canongate being one of them, and then uh, Canongate made us a nice offer too. And we're just trying to figure out where is the best entity to take me out of gear one, take me out of neutral into gear one, mm. and then possibly out of gear one into gear two as far as my writing career is concerned. And um, yeah, we felt Canongate was the better entity at this at this particular moment to do so, because it was smaller and I would be a a... I'll still be a small fish, but I'll be a small fish in a smaller pond yeah. as opposed to a tiny fish in a very big one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and like you say, that is the experience of so many writers. But I think that when you're um, writing such a unique book, I, I'm sure that journey would have been even more challenging. And the fact that um, two huge publishers or agents um, picked up on it is really, I mean, it must have been an amazing <laughs> An amazing moment when you heard that news, you know. I think competition is just so important. Like I always say to people, just just send your stuff in, whatever you're doing, just send it in, you know. 
It's very important. I think I was watching Stormzy speak this morning and he spoke about confidence, about people can be really, really good at what they do, but not have the confidence to take it further. And that was something that I lacked too for a long time. Hence why I'm I'm not the youngest writer you'll meet in the world. I'm in my 30s right now, my, my late 30s, and my first book's just coming out. Whereas I've the caliber of my, my way of seeing things or doing things has been like this since my 20s, mm. my early 20s. So I've just pushed a little bit earlier. The key thing here is that, yes, you're right. Writing something as unique and as different or so is very, very hard because mm. people in every single industry, your people, you're going to find lazy people. People don't want to do hard work. They want to do what's simple, what's easy to market, what is easy to explain, what is easy to um, what is easy to just convey to different people yeah. because that person cascaded forward. So when I'm coming with a book written a book on race which again a book on race written by a black man which has a very very different feel to when it's written by say a black woman Mm -hmm. um a book on race written by a black man um from the perspective of a satirical professor of white people studies (laughs) that's a lot of hurdles for a lot of people to overcome and um yeah eventually we've got this um your focus on um racism in the workplace as well because obviously you know you're in the you're in a huge work space now of publishing and um communicating publicly um and i read a piece that you wrote in the guardian recently about racism in in the workplace and how it goes um largely unrecognized um and you said in the piece that statistics only tell a fraction of the story it's the human cost and the tears and the burdens behind the statistics um and they're often unspeakable you know my friends and family have certainly experienced that um and the penalty for speaking up could be career ending and that's true as well um it's worth mentioning also that the ethnic pay gap is wider than the gender one so we you know we're confused as to why this is still going largely unrecognized so why why is it do you think I know it just seems like a really silly question, but just I'm just interested in your perspective, why we are still experiencing this level of discrimination that because I'm much older than you. Right. So I'm nearly 50. And I can tell you that the racism that me and my family and friends experienced in the 70s and 80s, just in our communities, as well as in the workplace, it hasn't actually changed today, even though on 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 the surface and the periphery or from the outsiders looking in, it may look like it has changed because of all of these um, structures that people are trying to put in their di- diversity policies and all these things. But we all actually know that very little has changed. Why do you think it's taking so long now? Anti-black racism in particular, yeah. addressing black racism, there is no sexy side to it yeah it's not like so when i say sexy there is no there's no you can't market it you can't you can't put up a flag and say we're inclusive and we're inclusive of black people or so you can't um it's it's not got so i don't know feminism for example for a ceo to come out and say i am a feminist or so something like that that earns him some kudos a white male ceo that earns him some kudos so that makes him seem more progressive um there is no stigma associated with it. The same thing as uh, um, if you go anywhere right now, for example, you'll see the rainbow flag, which is a very good thing. It's supportive of the LGBT community. It's it's empowering them. That's a very, 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 very good thing. And that's something that we must all support too. But mm. you would never see something like the red, black and green flag out. Or mm. you'll, never see, uh, you'll never see a CEO coming, standing up 
looking and again even when i mentioned the word ceo your listeners probably would have noticed that a white male popped into their brains yeah that is, not, that is not by accident that is that is you recognizing the social order um so so why does it persist i think there's a lot of things going on the when you think of go back to the if you think back to our enslavement to our various tragedies for example how they're treated whether it's the enslavement of us the colonization of us the actual debasing of our images and everything and so on and so forth the people and the class of people and the actual color and the ideology of the pinning it was never dismantled mm. it's not like hey after world war ii for example nazism becomes an abomination anybody who's a nazi or neo-nazi or feels like that it's just the scum of society or something like that no yeah. After any time, if you look at white supremacy, for example, white supremacy is never white supremacy is never is never really punished for doing things um, wrong against black people. Mm. Even if you go back to say South Africa, for example, um, 1994, um, it, it ceased to be a um, a racist state and a white supremacist run state. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were never punished. There was no real solid punishment there. There was no reparations for the actual people on the ground or so. It mm. just, the status quo maintained. And what we, the victims of these things, have to do is make our oppressors um, comfortable. Mm. Don't talk. Yes. Don't demonstrate. Don't say anything. Don't do anything else. So what tends to happen is that you get built, you get locked into a cycle which perpetuates our own um, our own subjugation. Yes. So, it continues for long because, again, because the things, the underlying ideologies and the people who actually, there has never been any punishment for doing wrong, for wrongdoing for us whatsoever. There's no, there's, there's no, there is limited carrot, but there's certainly no stick. Mm-hmm. And I think um, where, where you take the absence of those things, there's no real problem. And even, for example, I've been, I've been pretty senior in industry, for example, and I notice that when you even see black people promoted up to very, very high levels, yeah. myself included. Part of the, the un, underlying part of the deal is that you don't rock the boat on those things too. Of course. You can even look at Barack Obama, for example. Yeah. What you're seeing right now with um, the problem the Democrats are actually having is what I describe as Obama buyer's remorse. That yeah. A lot of people, I think, this guy didn't really make any difference. So black, getting black voters out to go out there and vote, they're thinking, well, we've done the symbolic stuff. We want reparations right now yeah. because they know that look, we need to make sure that there's actual solid, tangible stuff, tangible differences. The symbolic stuff doesn't really work for us. So to really give you a sweet and succinct um, answer to that question, why does this stuff persist? Mm-hmm. Because it's allowed to persist because it's never been dismantled. There is no real solid punishment. And when, there, when people when people are even the term white supremacy. They make it seem as if it's Tommy Robinson with a swastika tattooed on his forehead. That, that's an extremist. The reality of the matter is white supremacy as a concept is something that's very widespread within our society. It's mm. very it's the it's the global order. So um and it's never been dismantled. The notion that black people, particularly black people, are always on the harsher wings of these things, are inherently inferior to people. It's something mm. that might not be said out loud. Mm. But it's subtly implied when you see disparities in employment statistics. You'll never see black people always have the lowest rate of employment, always underpaid compared to everybody else, always mm. underpromoted. So, and you cannot separate that from what has actually happened in the past. The mm. past influences the future and it shapes the today. I completely get that. And do you know what's really worrying about that from my perspective as well is everything that you've said. Um, but as a parent, I see that reflected in the education system as well. We yeah, know that yeah. the, the, the institutional uh, uh, racial bias against children, how they are unfairly disciplined for behaviour that is seen through 
throughout the classroom by all children. I think we reached that point right, right now where we're not running away from it anymore. When I was little, mm. I was, um, and it probably underpins why I write things, like think like a white man, why I wrote something like think like a white man too. When I was little, I got sent to Nigeria. It's a bit of a story. When I was little, when I got sent to Nigeria, I remember the first few days we saw a man um, getting chased in the streets. I was walking down somewhere with my dad, and my dad just grabbed my hand, and we saw a man get chased, and eventually they caught the man. And they started to uh, they started to beat the man also. And then they and basically they were shouting thief, 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 that the man's a thief. Mm. And then, um, and then um, as they were beating the man, somebody asked, "What did he steal?" Then it dawned on everybody that the man didn't steal anything. He was just seen running, so they mistook him for a thief. Then about when I was in boarding school, like this was about eighteen months after that fact, we all went out late one evening. And uh, we, you're not meant to leave the premises, but we all just snuck out one late one evening, me and about three guys, very, very late one evening, about <laughs> 11.30. And then um, we were went to go and buy something. And then um, one of the guys we went to go buy some roasted meat by the roadside called Suya. And one of the guys only had half a 20 Naira note. So the Naira is the currency used locally. And yeah. he had only half of it. As in, he t- it had been torn into two, he'd lost the other half. So when he paid the guy or so, we were walking away and then... We didn't know that the guy had done that. Then he started shouting thief, and then we started getting chased. So we're oh. running, 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 running. And I, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't know that. I didn't know what happened there. But as we all ran in different directions, I was being chased by one particular person. And all of a sudden, as I got chased into some small alleyway, I just stopped, turned back, looked at the guy, and said, "Don't ever call me a thief or anything else like that again." And I started to chase him. And the funny thing about it was that. Something happened in my psychology there about, look, sometimes you could just stop running and chase them back. And it's kind of like what I did to think like a white man. I thought to myself, OK, that you've been running from this situation for so long. They'll start to stop, look at who's chasing you and start chasing them back. So make clear that you're not scared, that actually you ought to be feared. And um, that's kind of why I just thought to myself that that's a little bit of the psychology behind being like a white man, which mm. might make little to no sense to your viewers, but it probably will one day. So mm-hmm. fingers crossed. That makes absolute sense. That is such a powerful analogy, actually, that can be used in so many different circumstances to build confidence. I'm definitely going yeah. to remember that one, Nels. That's that's a good one, that one. What it, says, what it says to me overall is that as far as us as a people, us as a community is concerned, I think we're at that stage right now where we've stopped. We're turning back and we're looking at people who've been at the people who've been chasing us and oppressing us for so long. Yeah. We're not going to oppress them, hopefully not, but we're going to chase them away to a point where it's like, no, we're gonna we're not gonna stand for this anymore. And I think you're seeing that with certain types of literature you're reading, certain yeah. types of certain types, whether it's René Ideologist's book, um while I no longer talk to white people about race. Yeah. Of course, think like a white man, my friend Elijah's book, um Elijah the Wild's book, The Clapback, yeah. Safe by Derek yes, Russo. Yeah. Yeah, many different books. You know, Elizabeth, um, swaying your lane. And yeah. It's just pointing out that there's a, there's something within the air that there's a feeling that, as far as particularly as far as writers are concerned, maybe amongst some actors too, amongst other things, or creatives, even mm-hmm. a couple, even with politicians like David Lammy, for example, he's done the 180 degree turn and he's looking yeah. back now. He's, no, that's it. I'm chasing you back. I'm not doing this anymore. He wasn't always like this. David, uh, David's made a change. David was once upon a time a very, very fairly right-wing MP but now he's realized it, it wasn't working mm. it wasn't working for him it wasn't working for us so mm. he's made a change yeah um I've got to tell you I recently 
really enjoyed seeing you being interviewed by Jon Snow outside Buckingham Palace. You were being interviewed by John and another person, uh, a lady was there who was the former Republicans overseas VP, Jan Helper Hayes. Um, With um, both sides of the argument, you and her, and we obviously know what side of the argument John is on as well, but he did his best to remain impartial. But what really struck me um, about that conversation is how you responded to some of her statements so clearly and to the bone. And you were like, do you know what? We're just gonna cut the bullshit now with this political dialogue, you know, and these monologues. I'm just gonna say it how it is and respond to you from my heart, what I'm thinking and what I know everybody else is thinking. Um, And at one point she said, um, I absolutely support what Trump is doing as as a president. When you said what? Uh, Locking up children, mainstreaming white supremacy. Um, And I tell you what, I whooped at the TV (laughs) and I got my partner. I was like, you've got you've got to watch this. You know, there's someone there now who's just saying what we're all thinking. And it doesn't happen very often now. So thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. It's just like it was really important to see to see that. But what is it like? like being in those intense situations when you've got the camera on you and you're standing next to someone who is clearly spouting racist propaganda and goodness knows what else or or she's politely saying things but you know exactly what she means it's like I just thought you had so much strength in just saying how it was that I haven't really seen happen very often you know what's funny is that for me, for, so first of all, I should point out that um, the lady and John, John is, of course, lovely, is a lovely, very, very thorough, one of our best journalists within the nation. But the lady off air was actually very, very lovely. We had a lovely conversation, but I was already testing out what sort of Republican she was, because there's multiple types of Republican. There's some people who just believe that smaller government, um, lower taxes, mm. um, I don't want government interfering in my life. And there's some people who Republicanism, and to some degree, democratism, for example, is just white supremacy in, in, by any different name. And um, I realise that she's a charming lady, but a lot of what she espouses is just white supremacy by a different name. But one thing that happened off the air, I we were speaking about different figures in society. And um, I asked her, uh, she, she asked me if I, if I knew who Candace Owens was. Oh, right. Okay. I, yeah, I know who Candace Owens is. She, she's a... <laughs> And she said to me, she's amazing. She's absolutely brilliant, isn't she? I said, you, I said to her, you do know this is an act, don't you? That Candice probably doesn't mean half what she said. She said, do you really think so? You think it's an act? I said, yeah. That I don't believe that Candice Owens be- believes half of what she's saying. Mm-hmm. It's an act. This is what they do. So this is, this, is, this is the game for you. And she said, no, I don't believe it. I think Candice is being sincere. I think she's a, she's a genius. She's one of our, she could be a future president of ours. And I thought, well, God help us all if she is. And that was that. But when we got on air, I realised that, look, this is not going to be a situation in which we're going to be quite rough and tumble with each other. It's going to be polite racism that you're going to experience over here. Yeah, but yeah. what I told myself that I had to, I, I knew that the opportunity would present itself to actually just expose the racism for what it is. So when Jon Snow, and it was none of us prepared, I just, I'm, I'm just normally just, um, I just go into these things thinking about, okay, how do we deal with this debate? So when John Snow asked her to give Trump an endorsement or so, and I agree with what he's doing, I just thought, okay, he's locking up children. And then that's hard to defend. And she defended it. She did. Then we mentioned the measuring white supremacy. She she was a little bit somehow of it. Then when John mentioned populism, 
by that point, I'd established the actual case that what you're seeing over here is white supremacy. So it was not hard for me to call it out for me to say what populism is often just a euphemism for white supremacy, which I think is what really connected with people. So how do I find it? Do I find those things difficult or tough or so? I think I've become used to it. It, Mm -hmm. So many different experiences I've had throughout life prepares you for certain things. And you never know sometime in the future. So I might let people down in how I conduct myself. I'm no Superman or anything else. So I just um, I'm just somebody I go on see situations and I have the debate try and keep myself calm and collected and make my points and move forward from there. My last question now might seem like a bit of a a curveball but but bear with me um I don't know about you but I'm quite an avid um listener to Russell Brand's Under the Skin podcast who he had recently was um this researcher who's become very publicly um visible um for her work on uh courage and vulnerability and shame and she works with some of the the, the biggest global businesses and works with the ceos and and all, all of this but anyway she's called brene brown essentially she studies the human condition right and so russell was asking her about all of this trump and the brexiteers movement and what's going on and she said that when she came over to london and was in a cab there was something that the cab driver said about um they were going past a, a mosque and he just made a random comment out of nowhere it's just like you know we we'll get our country back soon kind of thing and she was just so shocked she said she really felt like a a difference in this country on this particular visit than she'd ever felt before and she was like you know shit you know shit's getting real here she was saying that she thinks that this is not so much a cyclical situation that we're going through here with white supremacy and, and trump and everything else she thinks that their time is over that the white man's power and understanding of their power over our bodies our, over our communities our livelihoods is over and she was saying that they know that and this is their last ditch attempt at fighting for the remnants of that power before they fall and she's saying you know it's going to be messy it's, it's awful there's there's obviously going to be many casualties I can intellectually understand all of this but my heart just feels like it wants to to know how this is going to go and and it's just very confusing and I just wondered what your perspective on it was. I think I actually think she makes a very good point because the other day I often say to people that what's the end game of this Brexit thing? I often ask people that that what do you think the end game of this Brexit thing is? Mm. Why, why is there so much passion about leaving the European Union and potentially damaging ourselves economically? That what that this is by any definition. I, I often say, but when, when people ask me about Brexit, I say to them, it's like holding a referendum on whether or not we should switch off the internet, um, on or off. And let's say off actually won. Let's say the demagogues just looked at the bad things about the internet and said, okay, there's child grooming on the internet, there's child mm-hmm. pornography on the internet, there's radicalization on the internet. So therefore, mm-hmm. let's switch off the internet. Then some idiot um, gives everybody a referendum. And then some, and they say, okay, well, what we're going to do? Switch, keep the internet on, or switch it off? And we say off or on. And then we say off. And then the people are stupid enough to vote off. Okay. Now, such a simple question with such massive complexities underlying it that it is actually almost impossible to deliver. And then we find ourselves bitching about, well, if we switch the internet off, should we just keep 56k dial-up on just to make sure? So it just gets stupid. Or do we think that this will really stop with just hey? We've left the European Union. No, I think it's going to get uglier. Mm. I think it's going to get uglier because I think once they realise, okay, A, we've left the European Union, what then happens after that? Because Mm. 
the immigration numbers are actually not going to go down. They might even increase. Because, yeah. And when I say immigration, that's the boiling, that's the driving thing. Uh, and I don't think immigration is a good thing. It's, sorry, it's a bad thing. I beg your pardon. I think immigration is an absolutely amazing thing. If there's no immigration, there's no me or so. Um, yeah. But there's no any of us. All of us are immigrants at one point or another. Okay. But the key thing is this, is that, um, and it always boils down to, what is the end game of this? And I think it's just, I think the vision for the Brexiteers is pretty much almost like a 1950s style white Britain. Yeah. And that is what is underlying it, which I do not know, which no one will actually say if it is or is not also. If that is what's underlying it, then things could get very, very ugly. If you look at it, they are already, our elders from the Caribbean mm. are getting deported mm. on any on any stupid basis whatsoever the windrush generation sacred windrush generation mm. they are getting deported mm. then some of them are getting deported on any minor technicality i read about a young lady called bumi thomas the other day born and raised in this country mm. the law changed very quickly after just before she was born and then all of a sudden it reached a point where her parents didn't register her therefore she's now pushing 30 and being told she has to leave the nation yeah family member of mine as well it's just it's just beyond that's insane that's that's insane yeah but it boils down to this what is the end game of this stuff now what you're seeing there what's happened to your family there to your family member what's happened to Bumi thomas the jazz singer and everybody else is yeah. a notion known as white supremacy it's just oh david olishoga just laid it all out quite clearly that yeah. they're trying to get rid of trying it's almost like a keep with britain white um crusade and yeah. i think that's almost what brexit is that's what trump is even though too and if you look at brexit and trump they didn't come out of the ether. They didn't come out of nowhere. They came as a backdrop to Barack Obama's eight years in president as president. Mm. And that shock, for example, uh, which didn't really change as much as everybody thought it would. Barack Obama let let the financial, the, the bankers or so, the people who were behind the financial, the people who committed crimes that facilitated the financial crisis, he let them get away with it. And barely anyway went to prison. It's hard to really think of how messy this could potentially get. I do listen to some people. There's a guy called Richard Spencer, who is a white supremacist. He's one of the leaders in the York right. He actively says openly that this is going to get very, very ugly before mm. it gets pretty again. But yeah. um, we need to reset the clock on how our nations look and feel and everything else. Yeah. So I think that the actual movement towards diversity, the movement, and, I, and again, even when you look at the, the, the calibers of diversity that are actually celebrated in Brazilian society, mm. they tend to be the ones that actually be more that are more inclusive of white people. So LGBT is is of course an intersectional uh, movement of yeah. gay people, some yeah. black, some brown, some white, for example. Yeah. But if it was just a black and brown movement, I don't think it would actually be embraced as much as it is today. Yeah. Uh, the women's movement, for example, the similar situation, which again is not embraced as much as anywhere it should be women are more the majority of the population but if it was just a black and brown movie for example i question how far it would go so look i've rambled quite a bit on this the answer is that i do not know what's going to happen next i think that the lady said about hey um this is there's a rising tide in, of racism within our society that she identified there is visible it's quite clear it is quite it's, it is happening also the demagogues are ruling the roost but um well what comes next and also to how do we prepare for it i'll finish by saying this yeah. one thing that 
can do for, par- for parents for on both sides of the Atlantic is making sure that we at least communicate with each other and stand together on these things. And mm. I think we did very well with that as far as Black Lives Matter was concerned. But I was mm. a bit concerned that, look, Black Lives Matter was in the Obama era and everything else. So I'm a bit concerned that now where we've got full-blown um, movements towards movements that are likely to be hostile towards us in full swing right now, whether mm. it's Trump in America, Brexit in Britain, for example, and what are we doing as mm. a movement? So what are, are, are the, the, those at the forefront of us doing, mm. for example? And I look at things like, I don't know, the um, She's Got to Have It clip, in which and some Black Britons, for example, are fighting over movie roles. And I think to myself, well, in in 80 years time, 100 years time, when you, we're telling our grand, our great our great grandkids about what we did to fight the rising tide of white supremacy in the early part of the 21st century, does mm. Spike Lee really want to be on tape saying, "Hey, I was there writing a script somewhere about how Black Britons are have have um, Stockholm syndrome or so?" Do I want to do something similar to that? No, I want to do things that bring us together to make sure that we're united to actually respond to it very effectively. And yes. that's the key. Yeah. But don't get me wrong, Spike Lee's done a billion good things for us. It's been wicked talking to you and I really appreciate your time. I really enjoyed it. I could talk to you all day. Oh, same but, here, same. but now I've got a daughter to teach, so I better get on with that. Well, well done for home teaching. I'd say that's brilliant. Thank you.